We are, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts for the past number of months, as you're well aware, and, and we know, and we were reminded in Sunday school today, God is the hero of the Bible, right? God is the one who is accomplishing things in the Bible. He is the one who does the work. He is the one who uh, brings people to himself. He sends out missionaries with the gospel. He does all the, God is the hero of the Bible, right? And so we have seen that for sure as we've been going through the uh, book of Acts. But we ran across this guy, Joseph. And uh, Joseph, who was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And uh, that, that got us to thinking about encouragement and what Christian encouragement looks like. And so we're going to take really the month of July, with the exception of a moon in a, in a couple of months, who in himself is always encouraging. <laughs> but uh, we're going to take the month of July to talk about Christian encouragement and different aspects of that. And so today we're sort of going to define it and see what's distinctive about Christian encouragement versus encouragement in general. And so uh, before we get to that, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we so often are in need of encouragement from you. We so often are in need of uh, comfort from you and exhortation from you. And oddly enough, all of those words uh, are English words used to translate one Greek word. And so as we come to your word this morning and we look at this topic of comfort and encouragement and even exhortation, I pray, Lord, that you would be lifted up. I pray that you would speak through your word to us. Help us to calm our hearts, not to be distracted by what has gone before or will come after, the things we're worried about or uh, the things that would battle for our attention, uh, for our minds. Help us to set those things aside. May we be focused on you, on your word, and what you have for us this morning. We bow down to you and to you alone. We don't worship anything or anyone else. We worship you. We do so through Jesus Christ, your Son. So, Father, we ask for your blessing and your guidance. Even in this time, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to be in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, and we're also going to spend some time in chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 1. This uh, concept of encouragement is, uh, you'll... You run across it in all circles of life. I spent a good portion of my life as an athlete and then a good portion of my life as a coach. And you know that encouragement is involved in that to uh, uh, encourage people to, to perform better or overcome difficulties or to keep on when they think they can't keep on or whatnot. Encouragement is a large part of all of that. But, but we want to come today because we've been kind of spurred that direction by Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And we want to learn what's distinctive about Christian Encouragement, Because when I think of encouragement, I just, I think cheering. I think cheerleading, right? You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And uh, there are times when that may be appropriate, like when someone's trying to run a little bit faster or a little bit farther. You're trying to spur them on. But, but uh, when the Bible talks about encouragement, it's not just talking about that. It's talking about some other things. And so we want to talk about what those other things might be today. And so a couple of very clear passages that talk about those two topics, uh, talk about that topic, are Second Corinthians chapter 1 and 4. And so we're, uh, we're going to read those, dive into those this morning. But before we get to Second Corinthians 1, I kind of want to fill in a little bit of the background to see why Paul starts off the book talking in this way. And it has to do with uh, the history of Paul and Corinth. 
You see, Paul had been there and ministered for a significant period of time, and then he went away, and problems developed in the church. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that those problems were significant. There were doctrinal problems. There were massive behavior problems. There were there were real issues that were going on. And so, um, so Paul had uh, he had written to them in a letter that we don't have. He had visited them, and it hadn't gone well. And so um, there's there's a little bit of tension between Paul and the church at Corinth, and and uh, and so he writes in this context of of that kind of history that he has with them. There had crept into this church at Corinth, as so often happens, some teachers who were bringing a different message. And it was a very different message than what Paul was bringing. They, uh, they, they were very well-spoken. They were very persuasive. They were impressive to look at. They had successful resumes. They looked really good. And so when they came into the church in Corinth, they, they, they called themselves apostles. And actually, Paul refers to them as super apostles, like they out-apostled the apostles kind of thing, right? These guys were, were very impressive. And if you heard them speak, you would, you would kind of be wowed and, and impressed. And, and they, they kind of taught that really for an apostle of Christ, there shouldn't be any suffering involved because you're serving God Almighty. And so, uh, the things should go well for you and you should have great success in ministry. And look at this guy, Paul. I mean, that guy's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He, he's, uh, you know, he's been stoned before. He's, uh, you know, churches turn against him. He's got all kinds of opposition. He suffers. He's poor. That, really, you want to follow that guy? You know, th- this is the leader that you want to follow? Is that Paul who suffers and is weak? Why don't you follow us? We're the impressive ones. We're the ones who have it all together. We, we are the ones who, who look good and we're successful in our ministry and we can show you our resume and all of those sorts of things. And so in the context of all of that, Paul writes this letter. And he starts off talking about comfort. He's going to spend the first couple of paragraphs talking about comfort. And that's because largely the book of Second Corinthians has to do with weakness. Weakness. And Paul's saying, this isn't a detriment that I'm weak. This is part and parcel with what it means to be a servant of Christ. And you, if you think through how the, uh, how the, the book of 2 Corinthians develops and how it works, its, uh, it works itself out, how Paul writes it, you can see that weakness occurs throughout there consistently. And, uh, and Paul never apologizes for it. And he doesn't say, well, I would really be a better apostle if I weren't so weak. He doesn't say that kind of stuff. Instead, he, uh, he starts off with our passage, uh, what we have right here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3 and go through verse 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And so we see in this passage here a discussion of encouragement that actually comes from suffering. It's not encouragement despite suffering. It's encouragement that comes from suffering. And the the beginning, the, the reason that that is, is because God is the one who comforts us. He's the one who is called there in verse 3, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That the comfort that we have is not just from someone on the sideline cheering and saying, you can do it, when you're pretty sure you really can't do it. It's, it, it comes from God Himself. It's a spiritual encouragement that comes from Almighty God who made you, and He is the one who's encouraging you. He's actually the God of, uh, the God of, uh, comfort and the Father of mercies. And so we have this, this supernatural internal comfort that comes from God Himself. And that's a comfort that can't be, um, Uh, duplicated from the outside. My cheering you on or someone else cheering you on is not the same and does not have the same power as God Himself being the one who comforts you from within by His Spirit. And He says that that's given for a reason, that God comforts us and thus we take that comfort to other people. We take that same comfort with which we've been comforted and we take it to other people. I, I look around the room and I think of the hardships that people have gone through, extreme uh, suffering that people have gone through. And when the Lord has brought you through it, you are so often the ones used to comfort other people who, who maybe uh, wouldn't be comforted otherwise or it would be much more difficult to comfort them. But because you have been comforted through horrific situations, because God has taken you through uh, difficult times, You have the capacity, because of that, because you have been ministered to and comforted in that way, you can take that to other people in a unique way. And so God comforts us, and he does so, in order that we might take that comfort to other people who need it. There's something going on in the background of this that we need to think about a little bit of who God is. If we remember that God is sovereign, and that's everywhere in Scripture, we remember that God is sovereign. We, we look at our circumstance, even our affliction, even our suffering, even the difficult thing that we're going through, and we realize that came to us from God. That didn't slip through. That came to us from God. And it was for a purpose. And I don't know all of the purposes, but one of those purposes is so that He might minister to you and comfort you in that affliction, not just for yourself. Certainly for yourself, certainly to build you up, certainly to to bolster you, to encourage you, but also to give you what it takes to go and minister and comfort to other people when they are going through hardship. 
And so we see that God is sovereign over all of this. He's not just doing the best he can and playing catch up, but he's actually working in this whole process, bringing these even afflictions into your life so that he might comfort you and you might take that comfort to other people around you. This is part of what ministry is. This is part of what true Christian encouragement is is dealing with and working through those kind of afflictions. And so that's how Paul could say that our hope is unshaken. Look at verse 7. He's talking about them suffering also, uh, which um, it is is for your comfort. Verse 6, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And so our hope for other people is unshaken. So when, when my family member or my loved one suffers, I don't have to sit back and kind of shake in my heart and wonder, how's this really going to work out? And these things I'm saying to encourage them, are they really true? And is, is this situation really going to work out? Or is, is my encouragement, is my comfort going to be real? Uh, is this situation going to, going to work out in such a way that this person is going to be encouraged? Paul says, our hope is unshaken. I have no fear because the same comfort that I have received from God, Paul says, in the midst of massive suffering, we feared even that we would die. We thought we had received the sentence of death, he says. And in that context, we were comforted. And so he says, I know that you, with your suffering, that might be fear of death or it might be something vastly different, the suffering that you have, God will minister to you and comfort you in your heart in the same way he did us. And so I'm not afraid when my friend suffers. I'm not afraid when my spouse or loved one suffers because I know that the God of comfort will comfort that person because I've been comforted. And so there's a, there's a fear that has been removed, that uh, there's, a, there's a lie that has been removed so often in the encouragement that we want to give in the world. It has to do with, you can do it, you can make it, or this thing will work out just fine. I'm sure it'll be okay. It's not always okay. And it doesn't always work out fine. So those kinds of encouragement are hollow, and we know they're hollow. We know they're hollow even when we're saying them. And when we're suffering, we know they're hollow when we hear them. Christian encouragement is different. It doesn't deny that your situation may end very badly. But it says that while that situation is going downhill, you are receiving comfort in your heart from God himself who comforts, who gives mercy, who ministers to you. And Paul knows very well because he thought he was going to die. And in that context, God was ministering to him, was blessing him, was comforting him. Christian encouragement is not a pie-in-the-sky wish that things will turn out fine. That's hollow, and that's empty. Christian encouragement is a calm resting in the knowledge that Almighty God Himself designed even our suffering in order ultimately to conform and to comfort us. Our comfort is in the hands of Almighty God. And so we don't seek it from some uh, some hollow statement or hollow cheering that goes on. 
The result is that in Christ we find encouragement even in our suffering, even from our suffering. And that's because our suffering serves to reveal what is our true treasure, the power of God at work within us. One of the first memory verses that I memorized as a new Christian was from just a couple chapters later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and following. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so that was one of the first memory verses really that I learned. And it was encouraging to me that that we as Christians understand that the visible world is not all there is. The, the physical that I experience, the, the, the things that, that, I, that I can interact with in this world, this is not all there is. That really there's a whole spiritual reality that is much greater and, and beyond the things that we experience. So we don't walk around like atheists thinking that, that what I can touch is all that exists. We know that God is real and I can't touch Him the same way. And we know that the spiritual world is real because the Holy Spirit is working and doing things in our lives that we can't see and yet we experience and we know that He's at work. And so this, uh, these verses remind us of that truth that God is doing something uh, beyond that. We know the problems and the trials of this material world are not all that there is. There's a whole spiritual reality that makes sense of the physical struggles that we face. In fact, there's a good reason why we face hardship. So if you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, turn back to verse 7. There's a good reason that we experience and face hardship. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. There's a reason for the hardship. There's a purpose for the hardship. There's a purpose, Paul says, for why he is a weak apostle who gets beaten, who's afraid of being robbed, who gets run out of town, who gets stoned, who has all of these problems, who suffers. There's a reason for it, and that main reason is to show God's power. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There's a growing sentiment in evangelicalism today that we really shouldn't have to suffer. I mean, especially maybe as Americans, we have all kinds of amenities. You know, we've got these refrigerators and that spit water and ice out the front, whichever you want. And, you know, we can, if, if it's too warm in here, we can cool the, cool it down by one degree if you really want. Or we can change, you know, if it's, we can affect that. We can change it. We, uh, we, we live very comfortable lives. And so 
in evangelicalism, we think that especially as Christians, we shouldn't have to suffer because after all, we're kids of the king, right? We're, we're, we're God's children and so surely he doesn't want us to suffer, right? That, that can't be really honestly part of uh, what is going on here. Paul says that actually we will suffer and it's for the purpose of demonstrating, showing that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're like jars of clay. We're fragile. We're vulnerable. We're not always that nice to look at. And that is the vessel that God has used to put this amazing treasure in. The reason is, when the only thing strong and successful about us is God at work in us, then the spotlight shines on Him and not on us. When these fancy super apostles came to town, people probably lined up, People probably, you know, tried to get a, a view of them. They really wanted to get in if they were speaking somewhere, right? There was a lot of fame. There was a lot of attention. There was a lot of spotlight on those super apostles. But when Paul showed up, he wasn't much to look at. Have you thought about how scarred he must have been after having been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and all exposed to the, to the elements all the time? He was probably not the best looking guy, right? And people didn't show up to sit really close to him, you know, so they could get a good look at this guy. That's probably not the way it worked for him. He was weak. And he wasn't much to look at. And even in his speech sometimes, people, people in Corinth thought, well, he's not really that impressive, actually, compared to these other guys. And when that happens, when that happens, we see the spotlight shine on God and what God is doing and not on the minister, not on the Christian. And so we, in our modern evangelicalism, who tend to think that we should never have to suffer, have it kind of backwards. That actually we will suffer. And it's part of God's design. It's part of God's plan. It's on purpose. He says, we will suffer to show God's power through our patient suffering. Look at verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's similar to what he said back in chapter 1 when he said, uh, it is for your, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same things that we suffer. This suffering that we go through is to show that the strength that we have, the ability that we have to take on life, is not just because we have a lot of uh, gumption or a lot of internal strength or, or whatever. It's because we have God working in us. And as we are weakened by our suffering, the life of Christ shows all the more strongly. That is on purpose. And so when we face trial, when we think, whether hypothetically about some uh, suffering and hardship that may come in the future, or very realistically about something that we or a loved one are going through right now, when we think about that, if we will remind ourselves that it is God who is at work, very much intentionally for the purpose of showing himself strong to other people through us, that will help us to endure patiently. And people around us will look and see how are you enduring so patiently? This is a big deal. And you're not broken. You're not crushed. How is that? Is it just that you're a very strong person? No. Jesus really is a crutch in that sense. 
when we are broken, he shows himself to be strong within us. And so that changes the way we think about difficulty. That changes the way we think about hardship and suffering and weakness and pain and disease and death. This is opportunity that God has brought our way so that he can show himself strong on our behalf. So when we endure patiently, the life of Christ is manifested in our lives. We ourselves are comforted, and there's great benefit to those around us. Look at verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul says death is at work in us. And then he's, he's going to, uh, he, he told the story about when they were, they were afraid that they were going to die. They thought they had received the, the sentence of death and, and, and they thought death was very imminent, right? He says death is at work. That kind of stuff is at work in us. Suffering is at work in us. And what's the result? Life in you. The people around the suffering person, the Christian who is going through difficulty and hardship and seeing the life of Christ bolster them when their own life is diminishing. The people who are surrounding that look and see, that's God at work. I see it. This confirms to me the truth of the gospel. This confirms to me the truth of what this person has said, that it is really God who is at work in the midst of those difficult times. So when we patiently endure suffering, knowing that it's truly a momentary light affliction that is producing in us an eternal weight of glory, others see this treasure for what it is. They see that it's eternal life. They see that it's true salvation and not just a philosophy or a a pop psychology thing that we tell ourselves. But it's actually God working in us, bolstering us, living in us in a powerful way. And so I wonder, just to pause for a moment, how often do we rob people of the opportunity to see what eternal life and an eternal perspective really look like because we won't accept that God would have us suffer and we aren't willing to endure it patiently? How, How often do we rob people of that opportunity? Because we would do anything not to suffer. Anything. We would, we would scramble, we would, uh, we would enter into relationships we shouldn't, we would do things financially we shouldn't do, we would make other decisions, anything not to have to suffer that thing. Because after all, we shouldn't have to suffer, right? And so, our spouse doesn't get to see what it's like when a Christian suffers. Or our unbelieving relatives don't. Or our neighbors people around us don't get to see. So what is the nature of true Christian encouragement? What's the best comfort that only Christians have to offer? I realize I've been a little vague at this, to this point, and that's on purpose. Flip backwards with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul is talking here about the light of the gospel. He's talking here about uh, the fact that he and those who minister with him don't do fancy things with their words, nor do they bolster their resume, nor do they do uh, these underhanded tricks to try and make the gospel more palatable to people. That's not the way they look at it. They speak the plain truth of the gospel. It's veiled to some people. But God uses it in the hearts of others to draw them to himself. And so he says in verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the source of true Christian encouragement. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I broke that down in in your outline there in four kind of different not steps, but aspects for us to look at. First of all, I want us to notice that it's talking about the glory of God. Nowadays, the glory of God is not a greatly understood thing. And and frankly, we can apprehend it. We We can know true things about it. But we're not going to get our arms all the way around what the glory of God means. We can't comprehend it. We can't have it all in our brains, right? But we know that God is glorious and the glory of God shines forth and it has to do with all of His perfections and they're perfectly balanced and He's, He's, He's perfect in all that He is. He's holy and righteous and just and good and loving and eternal and all-powerful. All of those things are balanced perfectly and because of that, all praise is due Him. His glory is wonderful and Scripture shows that as shining forth like a light. Like glowing so brightly that uh, that it, it will kill you. That's a bright light. That's the glory of God. It has to do with who He is, all of His perfections. We can't, uh, you know, we we say things about God and we talk about His, you know, He's omnipotent or uh, or He's just or whatever, and we talk about certain aspects of Him, but that doesn't mean we comprehend all of Him. He, we're trying to describe things that the Bible tells us to understand accurately, but He is huge. Not size-wise. He's, he's beyond anything we can comprehend. And His glory shines forth. And if we truly understood His glory, we, we would be afraid. That's where the fear of the Lord comes in. A person who is outside of Christ, who is in their own sin, would be destroyed utterly and immediately from the glory of God. And so the glory of God is a bright, shining thing. It's like a, a light that's too bright. That's a really dumb illustration because how bright can you make a light? I don't know, but it, d- it doesn't compare to the glory of God. But, but that's what's going on. We need to understand God in all of His glory. He's not cute and cuddly. He's not the, the man with the gray beard in the sky who gives you stuff. He's Almighty God who created all things. He's all-powerful. That is the glory of God. That's a tiny, tiny little introductory kind of picture to what Scripture teaches. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the glory of God. And so this is a big, scary concept. And that glory is made known to us. He says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, to give it. He gives it to us. It's something that has been made known to us. We didn't reason our way there. We didn't uh, think about it and philosophize and come up with, uh, you know, bigger versions of us. That that must be God. He had to tell himself to us. He had to describe himself to us so that we could understand anything at all about him. And so scripture is teaching us about who God is. We wouldn't have grasped that on our own. We wouldn't have come up with who he is and what he's done on our own. But he has given it to us. It takes a revelation from him to us in order for us to understand. In this uh, verse 6 here, he's talking about what happens at the moment of regeneration. And we are taken from that place of being dead in Christ to now being made alive in Christ. And it's the work of him doing that, where he's removed the veil and he's given this knowledge. He's given this light 
into us so that now we see things. And so it's made known to us. And how is it made known to us? Well, it's made known to us in the face of Jesus Christ. If we just thought about the glory of God and us trying to approach it, that will not work because we will be destroyed utterly. And so he sends Jesus. He sends Jesus. And so the glory of God is revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ, in his presence, in who he is. Jesus, who is God's own son, who became one of us and represented God on this earth, represented God perfectly, uh, the, the best revelation possible of who God is on this earth, that's what Jesus did. And so we, we now have not only an understanding of what justice really looks like in human relationship and what love looks like and mercy and all of those things that we, that we understand by looking at Jesus, but he himself died as our substitute so that the sin that we have on us, he took upon himself. So that he bore that, he paid the penalty for that. So that we might have his righteousness and forgiveness of sins. So our sins are not counted against us. His righteousness is counted for us. So now when we approach the glory of God in Christ, we can approach. It's not a thing that keeps us at a distance lest we be turned to ash. Because of Jesus Christ, it's made known to us. And so now we are able to approach. And so this is about the glory of God. And it's been manifested to us. It's been shown to us, made known to us, given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So that we can, we can apprehend and move towards the glory of God. We can be at one with Jesus and we can therefore be acceptable to God himself. And so that is this message that's going on. And he says that it's also our light. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It causes us to see what is real and what is true. For the first time ever, when God does that in us, we see what is real and what is true. It makes sense out of all of reality. It makes sense out of our lives. And it even begins to make sense out of our suffering. It's revelatory. And that is Christian encouragement. And there's no alternative. The, the cheering and saying you can do it has its place. But it's not at the moment of suffering in the Christian life. You can get through this. You can get through this. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. It'll, things will get better. You can't really say that because you don't know. And, and God's the only one who could say that, and he didn't promise it on this earth. And so that kind of encouragement is hollow. Christian encouragement points us to Christ, points us to the gospel and what has been accomplished on our behalf. So to flesh this out, I've got a, a few takeaways I want to talk about. First of all, Paul said back in, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 11, he said, you also must help us by prayer. So pray for people. That is encouraging. That builds them up. That strengthens them when you really genuinely pray for people. I don't want to miss that. That's clear there in verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So we want to pray for one another. True Christian encouragement is an internal reality. It's a spiritual reality. And how do you affect spiritual reality in another person? You can't 
you know, hugging doesn't quite do that or telling them. Prayer does that. God works through prayer in the places we can't access by ourselves. That's first of all. Second of all, there's nothing more truly comforting than the gospel. We, we may want to hear when we're suffering that everything will be all right. But we can't promise that. That's not real comfort. There's nothing more comforting than the gospel. Thirdly, so the question comes up, okay, if the gospel is comforting, how is it comforting? So I want to kind of give an illustration here. How do we apply the gospel to a person's affliction? So I've, I've, I've imagined a person in my mind. This is a hypothetical person. Imagine a person has been wronged by someone else and needs comfort. Okay, you can probably think about how that might possibly be the case, right? Been wronged by someone, needs comfort. So we point that person to Christ, right? Jesus is faithful and he never wrongs anyone, first of all. And so you, you take the person's eyes off of this person who wronged me and and point their eyes towards Christ, who has never wronged anyone. He doesn't wrong people. He is faithful. More than that, he's faithful even when he himself is wronged. So when he's in my place of, of having been wronged, he continues to be faithful. And he does not wrong in return. And so Jesus himself doesn't wrong people, uh, and he's faithful even when he himself has been wronged. And in fact, if you think about it, we have wronged Jesus much worse than anyone has ever wronged me. And he remains faithful. And he doesn't do wrong. And much, much more than that. He, he took my injury. Injuries, the things that I've done wrong and the things that you've done wrong to Jesus. He took that injury on himself and he bore it. Didn't lash out in, in, in response and retaliation, right? Not only that, but he took the guilt from the fact that you injured him. He took that guilt upon himself and he bore that. Bore the punishment for that. So that the wrath of God that you deserve and that I deserve because of our having wronged Jesus in all the ways that we have with all of our sin... He took that on himself and bore the wrath of God, bore the punishment for that. And so we're directing the eyes of the person away from their own situation, away from this person who has wronged them and helping them to see what is the greater reality, what is the more important truth that we need to have in mind. So Jesus, not only is he wronged by us and doesn't retaliate, Instead, he actually takes the guilt of my having wronged him on himself, pays the penalty for that, and what do we get instead? When we trust in him, we get forgiveness. We get forgiveness because that penalty was poured out on him, and we get forgiveness instead. And so, when a person is injured by another, he's seeing just a tiny, tiny little fraction of a picture of the injury, the wrong that he's done to Christ. It's an opportunity for us to look to the gospel. It's an opportunity for us to look to Christ. And we receive forgiveness from him. So what ought I to do to this person who has wronged me? This is Christian comfort. This is, this is a true deep down comfort that's very different than you can do it or your situation will get better. This is this is the kind of encouragement that lasts, that goes on. When we are wronged by others, that suffering provides the opportunity for us to be comforted by God in all of our affliction. 
And, as Paul says, that is so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction. So there is great value to, uh, it, it helps me to comfort you if I've suffered in a similar way to how you were suffering. That is true. We all know that. But it's also true that any affliction that I have gone through and been comforted by God helps me to comfort anyone going through any affliction. Because what's the solution? It's not that I feel your pain, as Bill Clinton said. I never thought I'd quote Bill Clinton from the pulpit. I'll tell you a funny story sometime about one time I met Bill Clinton way back in the 80s. But it, th- that, that's not the greatest comforter that I can understand what you're going through. That, that, that's helpful. That's very helpful. But it's not the final comforting, encouraging fact. The final comforting and encouraging fact is the gospel itself. And so we are helped to comfort those who are in any affliction with that comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's another point, a takeaway for us. If we are to find comfort, if we are to give comfort and find comfort truly and finally and ultimately and only in the gospel, how often do we run to sin to find comfort? I'm going through a hardship, I'm going through a difficulty or the threat of a hardship or the threat of a difficulty. And what do I want to do? I want to find some way to run away. I want to find some sin that's going to comfort me. Whether it's some relationship or some substance, or some thing that I'm going to avoid, or do that I shouldn't do, or whatever. How often do we take sin and try and comfort ourselves with sin? When in fact, what we need to be comforted by, and what's ultimately comforting, is the gospel applied to our lives. And so we come to the communion table today. And there are times when when we you could think in your own life when you have sought comfort not in Christ, but in, in something else. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of that sin, turn away from it, and turn to Christ, turn to the gospel, and seek and find comfort in Christ, in the gospel. And we need to learn how and work at comforting one another with the gospel. So we come to the Lord's table. This is our communion time. And this is this is a time when we have physical elements that we can taste and touch and smell and see and even hear that that preach the gospel to us, that remind us of this. And this is the comforting fact. This is the greatest comfort. And so when we come together today, I want it to be for our comfort in this sense. Maybe we have suffered wrong. There's comfort here. Maybe we have wronged others. There's there's forgiveness and comfort here. It's represented in what Christ has done. And so as we go through this, I, I want us to think about the things perhaps that we have sought comfort in and instead turn our minds from those things and on to Christ. We may need to confess sin. We may need to repent of sin, the things that we've tried to comfort with. We, we may need to realize that I'm going through hardship and I'm trying to comfort myself or comfort someone else with something other than, than the gospel, something that ends up being hollow, something that will not ultimately be comforting. We may need to think in those terms and turn our eyes to the gospel instead. So if I could have the men who are going to serve come forward, please.
The Lord's table is a, uh, as I've already said, it's a celebration of the gospel. And so this is for Christians. This is for something, uh, so- something for those who believe in Christ, who have put their trust in him, who realize that on their own, the glory of God would destroy them. And so they, they have put their faith in Christ. They've trusted in him. They've turned away from sin, not seeking to be comforted there, but instead turning to Christ and seeking to be comforted there. And so this is a celebration of that. And so if you're not one of those, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ in that way, first of all, I, I want to talk to you after the service, uh, if, if uh, that's at all possible. But, but second of all, just let the elements pass. There's nothing, nothing shameful or embarrassing about that. Just let the elements pass. Uh, this is a celebration of the gospel and of what Jesus has done for us. And so um, we're going to go through the different elements, and they represent... Uh, the body of Christ, and they represent the blood of Christ so that we can see and touch and handle what Jesus has done for us to remember, to remind ourselves, and to be encouraged in this way that we've talked about today. As we're going through the elements, as we're reading through the scriptures, as we're praying together, as you have time to meditate as the plates are moving backwards, take that time to think about the gospel and apply it in your own life. Or maybe you've got uh, someone near and dear to you who needs to hear this encouragement. Not just that it's going to be okay or whatever, but that here is the gospel. Here is how God ultimately delivers comfort to us. And so as the bread and the water, or excuse me, bread and the cup are passed, I looked down and saw the word water. I I have done, uh, I've gone to a communion at a Mormon church before, and it's water. And that's a, that, that does not represent the blood of Christ. There are reasons they don't want to represent the blood of Christ. And so we, we have the fruit of the vine that, that we celebrate here. As they are passed, uh, hold on to them, and then we will take them all together at the same time. <clears throat> 